0: There is a podcast for everyone out there, but from the viewpoint of the male executive assistant, not so much. So here we go. Hello ladies and hello gentlemen, welcome. I'm your host, Jonathan Brickwood, and I've been an assistant for more than 20 years. Being a man in what is decidedly a role filled by women has put me in some insightful, some hilarious, and certainly some very unique situations. During this podcast, I plan to share many of those experiences, as well as some of the tips and tricks and the do's and the don'ts that I've learned over the years, which is my way to bring a new perspective on an old profession. Whether you are a receptionist, a secretary, an executive assistant, somewhere above, below, or in between, retired, starting out, or mid-career, I hope that you find some enjoyment and something interesting from my ramblings. So please join me, ladies, and of course, the gentlemen, as I bring you into my world, the world of the male admin, on my podcast, Hello Ladies, Perspectives from a Male Admin. Welcome back. I'm Jonathan Brickwood, and this is episode 10 of the podcast, Hello Ladies, Perspectives from a Male Admin. Thank you for joining me this week, and as always, thank you for your support. I would also like to wish my Canadian listeners a happy Thanksgiving, and to my American listeners, a happy Columbus Day. This week's episode, I look at the ways the admin supports across time zones, including arranging travel and scheduling meetings in alternate time zones. There's also a revisitation of trust between the admin and the executive. And I also have a short commentary on Thanksgiving. And of course, I have this week's featured admin. So now I bring you into my world, the world of the mail admin. (laughs) To start this week, I thought I would revisit the topic of the offsite. Now having returned from two offsites in as many weeks, and even still having organized over a dozen of these or so in the past 15 years, I still come away with a lesson. From the past one, I note two things that I want to pass on. First, for anyone with dietary requirements, always make sure that you are provided the options in advance. Just because a venue says that they have, in this case, vegan options, verify it. Ask what that option will be. Make sure that it is in fact vegan and get it on the record. I will note that fish is not vegan. I knew this. They apparently did not. Nor is milk which they also did not. So milk-soaked trout is absolutely not vegan. I will suggest ask the venue to provide as a part of the banquet event order what the vegan, vegetarian, or other option is, have it pre-plated for the attendee even when doing a buffet, make sure that there is also an option for each meal, and that that's a different option for each meal, and make sure that they don't have the same thing for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I was constantly talking with the staff to get the vegan dish plated for one of my attendees, and even after repeated discussions, emails, and requests, it was still a significant hassle to get this done. It shouldn't have been. So that's my first takeaway. My second have a pre-meeting with the venue coordinator. Because my most recent offsite started early on a Monday and I arrived on a Sunday, they weren't available to do this pre-meeting. So we did it very haphazardly early on the Monday morning, about 10 minutes before everybody started to arrive. As a result, I was dealing with many things on the fly Monday during the meeting. We were lacking flip charts, which were specifically requested in advance. The instructions for the dining room setup weren't correct, even though I requested them advance. We were all split up in different areas of the dining room instead of all being able to sit together. I got this rectified for the dinner, but it was still something that I had indicated earlier, which wasn't done. We also didn't have table numbers, an extra table, or the additional power bars in the meeting room. Despite all of these things being requested in advance, they weren't available and they weren't there. So I had to keep going back and forth with the conference venue coordinator to get them. All of that said, though, only me and my boss really knew what was missing or what was going wrong. And to the attendees, they didn't see anything going wrong. All they saw was the end result and they saw a well-executed event. So what I was saying to them when they said, oh, Jonathan, this is going along really well, I said to them, well, you're not seeing how the sausage is made. And so this is one thing that I will tell you. Don't let them see how the sausage is made. No one will know the difference. It's very much the Star Trek Scotty example of don't tell them how much time you really need. Tell them more time than you actually need and get it done in less time, and then you'll be able to come around as a miracle worker. That being said, I have no more offsites this year, but my list of to-dos for this week includes checking dates and venues for the off-site in 2024. <music> When it comes to supporting your executive across the border, or more specifically, supporting them across time zones, the key thing is to remember, obviously, the time difference. I cannot stress this enough. If your executive is four hours behind you or six hours ahead of you, add that time zone to your phone, to Outlook, keep the conversion stuck on a note beside your keyboard, anything, just make sure you have the conversion for the time zones easily available so that you are very quick and easily able to provide what time zone that they're in. It's very easy to mess up scheduling across time zones, especially when they cross the international date line. At one time, my executive then traveled to Australia for a week. She had meetings in Perth and in Melbourne. Opposite sides of Australia, for those unaware, and in different time zones. Three-hour difference time zones, to be exact. And from my hometown of Toronto, they were, across the dateline, being tomorrow, today. I had this all laid out in detail, liaised with the different agencies and contacts in the respective cities, put it in the itinerary, got my executive off at the correct time and date to arrive on the correct time and date, and I'm pleased to say that I got this right. It wasn't easy, it wasn't fast, but the detail paid off and we got them there when they were supposed to be. My executive, though, had a challenge remembering that the days were different, and that the time zone was actually the day ahead. I got a panic call on a Sunday about why I wasn't answering their email. They'd forgot that it was a day ahead, or rather that I was a day behind. This was before I had a work phone, so the call came to my personal phone while I was at dinner with the family. I still managed to sort everything out, and they felt a little silly and apologized to me, having forgotten that On their itinerary, I had noted what time it was in my time zone for every time in their time zone. It's considerably easier when the time difference is only three hours. When my executive now makes trips to California, it's much easier to schedule things after 10 a.m. my time for them for their virtual meetings. I just add California time zone to my Outlook calendar and, in a glance, can tell what time it is here and what time it is there. I'm also going to shamelessly promote the website timeanddate.com, which I've been using since around the time it was created. Back then, it was just time zones. Now it's so much more and an incredibly useful tool. It's always one of the first bookmarks on my browser bar whenever I've started a new job. And since I use it for countdowns and time zones and general information, it is well worth the bookmark. I highly recommend it, even just for casual use. When arranging travel, there are two types, international and domestic. For international, I consider this anywhere outside of Canada, or for you, anywhere outside of your home country. And domestic, which I consider inside Canada, or for yourself, inside your home country. Of course, your determinations of international and domestic, as I said, will vary depending on where you live, but I think that that's the best way to classify it. International, outside, domestic, inside. For international travel, I usually work with an agency through my company. It has simplified so many processes over the years, especially when it comes to visas or entry requirements for certain countries, especially if I'm not familiar with them. Some countries don't need a lot of stress, like entering the United States or the UK on a Canadian passport, but others do require a lot of stress, like going to the Middle East or parts of Asia or China. So depending on where you're going or where you're doing your executive's arrangements, if at all possible, try and work through an agency. If that's not possible, reach out to other admins in your company who've done international travel. This is the best way to start, even for the experienced EA. A fellow EA currently has been coordinating travel for several executives to China and to Hong Kong, and the entry requirements are significantly complex. We don't have an agency to work through, so she's been doing it on her own with significant issues. Thankfully, she's had a liaison at the embassies that's made a world of difference, but it's still been very challenging because she has to complete it all herself. It's all done online, and it is not the easiest process. But whenever possible, I always say, try and get an agency to help. At the very least, an agency makes the process smoother, but more than that, it makes sure that you don't miss anything for your executive that they need for the trip. The last thing you want is for them to be stuck at the destination customs and immigration because they didn't have the proper entry documents. Domestic travel is by far simpler, and I only have one sentence for this. For these, I usually just book the flights myself and put them on the corporate card. I'd be remiss without adding, especially for all of these arrangements, the importance of an itinerary for your executive. Some of my executives have liked full, detailed itineraries, and others have just wanted copies of flight and hotel bookings. Some have wanted me to do all of the arrangements, and others have just wanted me to book the flight, or book the hotel, or the flight and hotel, or liaise with somebody else or their personal travel agent to do it. No matter, though, what level of involvement I've had, I always prepare some type of itinerary, even if it's just an email with some information. My go-to itinerary, though, always has the following information. My contact information, both my work and my personal, the contact information of whomever they are having meetings with at the destination, of course, the time zone differences with examples. So if it's nine o'clock here and it's four o'clock there, I will put that down. The hotel booking confirmation and numbers and the hotel address and the hotel phone number and contact if I have one there. The flight booking confirmations with flight numbers, seats if pre-booked and all of that information for the flight and also the emergency line for the agency if I've booked it through an agency or the emergency line for an airline if the airline has an emergency line that is actually a reliable line. Car rental or car rental service confirmations if I've had to book them a car and of course emergency numbers at their destination. Itineraries are a particular thing for executives and a very unique Type of thing depending on what their preferences are. I had one executive who wanted every detail of their trip laid out in the itinerary, from car pickup information when they left their home to flights to which gate at both the departure and arrival the plane would be at, as well as preferred airline lounge information. And one once asked me if I knew what baggage carousel that their luggage would arrive on. I said I didn't have that and that they just needed to check the board when they arrived. For these two, they were very detailed itineraries. In one particular case, the four-day trip, the itinerary ran about 10 pages. Now, on the other extreme, I had an executive where all I booked were the flights, and I emailed them the confirmations. I then added in an email with the information I normally include in my itineraries, but they didn't want a formal itinerary and they were very seasoned travelers and they had been traveling since they were in their teens and at that time they were in their 50s. And by far, they were the easiest to arrange. Overall, though, some type of itinerary is important. At the very least, I suggest providing them a printed document so that They have all of the basic information and the numbers at the destination. So should anything happen to their phone or their internet connection, they're still able to get the details and be able to get a hold of someone at the destination. (music) To round out the topic of travel, I'll return briefly to the earlier topic of trust. When arranging travel for your executive, there is a particular level of trust that you need to have. You need to provide passport information, credit card information, and home addresses, usually for a lot of the travel documents. These are all carefully protected personal information documents, and should that information be misused, compromised, or lost, can be extremely damaging to both the executive and, of course, to yourself and to the trust that they held in you. So it's imperative to safeguard the information in the best way possible. In simplistic terms, I have found that taking pictures of the documents rather than typing them out and embedding those pictures in password-protected Word documents is the best balance between securing the information and having it convenient that I have been able to find. Just remember that always make sure you have the most current information as well. I've had to remind my executives before that they've had to get their passport renewed and to give me their new credit card numbers or expiration dates. On the note of credit cards, I'm just going to mention very briefly the topic of expense reports. I feel that this always goes hand in hand with travel. And the one thing that I always tend to have to remind my executives for is to make sure that they keep all of their receipts. Doesn't matter what it is. I want them to keep their receipts. I much prefer to resort them for personal and business related expenses than to have them try and do it. And then we try and figure out which ones are missing at the end. I've always given them an envelope and all they have to do is just stick every single receipt that they get in this envelope. I give them an 8.5 by 11 envelope or I guess a 9 by 12 envelope um, because those are always nice and big and they don't tend to lose the envelope and most of them put it in with their computer. Diverting off my regular topic just briefly, I wanted to touch on Thanksgiving and the personal interactions thereof. It's a near given that with a blended family, there will always be a bit of tension around the holidays, different views and politics, different traditions coalescing into one. No matter how much we try to ease or sidestep issues to have a kind of relaxing and unconversional, uncontroversial gathering, inevitably something is said that takes everyone off on a bit of a journey. It happened this weekend to me and my family, and we're a blended family and a fairly recently blended family as well, so we're still working our way through some of these matters. This year, we also needed to split our Thanksgiving into two days with different attendees because there were multiple scheduling conflicts, which meant we couldn't all get together at once. Blame is not something that can easily be placed or received, and the consequences of disagreements at family gatherings are a natural result of this. It's easy to blame one or another when the disagreements occur, but things are never made better through blame. When there is a disagreement or a fight, it takes more than just one to work on restoring the balance. And when some memories are caused to resurface, it takes more effort than expected for all. It may be expected that it falls on elders to create a group balance, but that isn't always the case. Sometimes it is them who cause the imbalance, and sometimes there is no one who can create a balance again. In which scenario, it inevitably falls into a bit of a verbal and emotional brawl among all of those in attendance. Despite the best intentions this weekend for all attending, me and my family did end the day on a bit of a sour note. We could have avoided it at multiple stages. I mean, I myself am guilty, as we all are, just on a percentage basis. Both myself and others could have sidestepped or curtailed the issue earlier, and without it ending where it inevitably ended, with a fight, a slammed door, and an early departure without goodbyes. There's never a good ending to these types of things, only endings where an avenue for reconciliation is available. So my amateur advice, try to be the one who either creates the balance or, to you extricate yourself before you yourself get hurt. That's my amateur advice for Thanksgiving, for Christmas, for any family gathering, to try and keep the balance and to ensure, or at least to try to ensure, a good and enjoyable time. <laughs> I end this week's episode with my featured admin, Miss Moneypenny, the secretary and assistant to M in James Bond, portrayed by four different actresses over the course of the movies. I exclude from this the non-Eon productions. She was, over the course of the time, secretary, assistant, confidant, and ineffable administrator. The first to portray Money Penny was Lois Maxwell from 1962 to 1985. Likely the most well-known of the original movies, Lois Maxwell was in 14 of those first movies. She was in Doctor No, From Russia with Love, Goldfinger, Thunderball, You Only Live Twice, On Her Majesty's Secret Service, Diamonds Are Forever, Live and Let Die. The Man with the Golden Gun, The Spy Who Loved Me, Moonraker, For Your Eyes Only, Octopussy, and my personal favorite for all of the earlier ones, A View to a Kill. She was followed by Carolyn Bliss from 1987 to 1989, who was in just two of the movies. Those movies were The Living Daylights in 87 and License to Kill in 89. Considering that these two movies were... I would say not generally well received. I don't think she is that well remembered, but I wanted to highlight her because she is still one of the Money Pennies. She was followed by my personal favorite, Samantha Bond, who was Money Penny from 1995 to 2002, covering most of the Judy Dench as M era. Which included GoldenEye, Tomorrow Never Dies, The World Is Not Enough, and Die Another Day, which were also the Pierce Brosnan, James Bond episodes, or rather, movies. An interesting side note to this is Pierce Brosnan was originally scheduled to play James Bond when Roger Moore was cast as James Bond, but Pierce Brosnan was in contractual obligations to be Remington Steele at the same time. So it only took a couple of decades, but he did eventually get off to play the rebooted James Bond in the 90s and early 2000s. For those Downton Abbey fans, I'll say that Samantha Bond would go on to portray Lady Rosamund Painswick, Lord Crawley's sister, In an earlier incarnation, she would also portray Julia Simmons in the Ms. Marple A Murder is Announced, one of my personal favorites, and Stella Robinson in the Poirot episode The Adventure of the Cheap Flat, which is not one of my favorites. Naomi Harris is the current Miss Moneypenny, having held the role since 2012 and having starred in Skyfall, Spectre, and No Time to Die. Again, Moneypenny was one of the first secretaries and assistants that I encountered in the media. And being in the secret intelligence, I thought made perfect sense for an assistant, being that that's what we do. We keep and we manage secrets. Thank you all for spending this time with me on episode 10. If you've made it this far with me, I hope you'll stick around for the next 10 episodes, all of which I have already started to plan out. That being said, I do plan to throw in a little bit here and a little bit there that isn't planned, much like the Thanksgiving commentary I made today, mainly for things that crop up in life that you can't plan in advance. Next week is an episode you'll want to stick around for. It's episode 11, where I'll give you an insight into my career paths. I'll have a look back at my very first jobs, both as an admin and not as an admin, all the way up to my current role. I may even have a special feature to include, like I've said previously, but I haven't yet figured out what that might be. The following week for episode 12 is what I'm calling the Columbo episode, and I'll have a look back at things that admins do that are small but make a big difference. For episode 13, I'm going to focus on what it's like to support from the top, but from a different perspective. I'll be focusing on those other types of things you do as an admin. Everyone knows about calendaring, but you don't necessarily know about those other things we do. This will be different from the Colombo episode, where all I will do will be focusing on the little things that admins do. In episode 13, I'll be focusing on the things that admins do that absolutely fall into other duties as assigned, but make the executive's life much easier. So I hope you'll stick around until the end of October for that episode. Like always, I would like to thank you, my dedicated listeners, for your support and to thank you for sticking around now through 10 episodes of My Perspective. You can continue to find my outtakes and short videos on TikTok and Instagram and YouTube. I also have the Facebook page and I have a profile on LinkedIn. If you're interested for that, all of my links can be found in my link tree and I post there regularly. So until next time, happy Thanksgiving, happy Columbus Day. Have a great shortened week. I'm Jonathan Brickwood, and this has been The Perspective of a Male Admin.